0: did we
1: are back. Too far. No, Good morning, morning, church. Church. Good morning. Good 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 to see you. Come in and find a seat. We're glad to have you with us.
2: We're here to worship
1: the Lord this morning. So, you'll notice that we have a boy band up here this morning. We're just Which missing our brother, brother Doug. Doug.
3: Doug. He's
1: probably watching online, and so Doug, we miss you. And uh, we're glad that the rest of you are here. We're gonna we're gonna sort of be the uh, the seed to this big choir that we have in the room, and we're gonna praise the Lord together. You know, before, you know, before we begin, I often. Or I have started the practice of explaining any lyric allusions to scripture that might not be familiar to everyone. So this song that we're going to open with, song called How Great Is Our God, there's a reference to the lion and the lamb. And so that comes from the book of Revelation. I think John the Baptist was the first one to coin the term for Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world and so and that's so that was, the, uh, lamb. The, the lamb, lamb and, and, and the, the lion, 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 lion is in revelation where jesus is called the lion of judah judah, judah was judah, from judah, the, was the, the tribe of, the of jesus, jesus, jesus was from the tribe of, the of judah. judah that's also the tribe that king david was part of and then and the succession from king david to jesus is laid out in the gospels and so that's what the lion and lamb refers to this you know we hear the term sacrificial lamb And I think think that's unfortunate in our culture culture. because we we think of a sacrifice 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 as something something that you you give up, right? You You sacrifice something something so so that you can have something back. That is not biblical. Jesus was the sa- was the Lamb of God with the sacrifice, but it wasn't something that we sacrifice and we get in return salvation. That would be earning it. In the Bible, the sacrifices were substitutionary. So the the, the sacrifice substituted for what you deserve. This the sac the
3: sacrificial lamb was a substitute
1: for you, and of course that's what Jesus was for us. He substituted himself for us, and that's. what going to celebrate this morning. So if you would, let's stand together and let's warm up for our time of worship by singing How Great is Our God.
3: The splendor of the King that is born. You say your are
2: I just, I just, I just, those words, 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 words the weak made, made, made strong resonate, resonate with, me. with me, and I don't know where you are sure at this sure morning, sure what, morning sure. what, what, what weakness you may be evening, feeling, maybe it's a physical the evening, weakness, maybe it's emotional tiredness and weakness, whatever weakness you may be feeling this morning, like it's a joy to come together and celebrate that it's not our strength that any of this depends on, but Jesus' strength, and we get to gather together and celebrate that this morning. We're glad you're here with us. You may be seated. Good to be with you this morning. If you're visiting or new here, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here. Uh, We're just glad that you're here with us. If you are new, a couple things we'd like to make you aware of. One, uh, on your way out at the table in the back, we have... A gift for you. We'd love for you to to stop by there ask any questions you may have about the church um, and you can get a gift back there. Also, in the seat back in front of you, there is a connect card. If there's any information you'd like to communicate to the church, um, you can do that on that card. You can drop that in the boxes that are on the back wall on your way out. Um, That's also where you can uh, drop any tithes or offerings that you may want to give this morning. A couple of announcements to bring um, to your attention. But first, coming up on Saturday, September 24th, we're going to have a, a harvest festival celebration out at the Russell Farm on Wheeler Island. Um, and so, they'll we'll gather at four o'clock. We'll, dinner will be served at five. So, meat will be provided for that. But if you are coming, and we'd ask you to bring a salad or a dessert to pass and share with that. That'll just be a time to gather and celebrate and. Um, play games, and enjoy one another's uh, friendship. So we'd invite you to be a part of that. The week before, the Saturday before, at 9 in the morning, um, we're going to have a little clean-up time at the the Russell Farm just to get that place ready for that. So if you are available to help clean up on Saturday the 17th at 9 a.m., we would appreciate that as well. The last week at our quarterly meeting, uh, we, we voted on new members. Um, we were a little bit short of a quorum for that, and so we sent out ballots in the mail this week. Um, and so we did receive enough of those back to re- reach a quorum. And so uh, I just want to officially announce Deb and Wayne Canada, Barb and Brad Larson, Jan Seedy, Elaine Thorne, and Rachel Wood are all now officially members of our church. And we are glad you're with us. <laughs> if you want to receive that kind of round of applause in the future. <laughs> right, there's a membership class on October 1st from 9 to noon. Um, and so we will gather together. We'll talk about you know, what we believe at the church, what it means to be a member here. Even if you're not sure about membership, you just want to find out more, uh, we would invite you to come be a part of that. It's not a commitment in any way, but just come learn more. And if you need child care for that, Um, Class, we can arrange that as well. We'd invite you to come be a part of that. With that, let's pray together. Father, we thank you, we praise you for the chance together. We come here, we gather here as weak people who are in various stages of life. Some of us are walking through hard times, walking through difficulties, struggling with sin, struggling with illness, struggling with family or friendship concerned. We just we come with an awareness that we are weak. And we are without hope in our own strength. And so we praise you that what we saying this morning is true. That we are made strong in Jesus. That your power is made perfect in our weakness. That even through the storm, Jesus remains Lord of all. you have good and perfect plans for us. Even as we walk through hard times. So I just pray for each person gathered here this morning. That we would have a deep and abiding sense that Jesus is our strength. For those of us who are here who may be in a good stretch, maybe feeling tempted and prone to thinking we can do it in our own strength, would you remind us that even when things are going well, we still need Jesus. Those of us who are here who are walking through deep and hard struggles right now. Would you make real in their hearts and in their minds the reality that Jesus is still Lord, that your plans are still good. That you are at work to bring about your good purposes, even in the midst of storms and trial and struggle. And as we dwell and reflect on Your goodness, on Your good plans for us? Would it move us to worship You? Would we sing this morning with the words we sing they, they not just be mere work, but they be the overflow of our heart? Would You be honored? Would You be Glorified, would you be praised this morning that we worship, that we hear your word. Would we leave here the deep sense of your goodness, your love for us, your care for us, even as we walk through hard times. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: So we'll continue in our worship this morning. You know, Pastor Tim this morning is preaching from Luke about the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And that was a time when um, people acknowledged or welcomed him as the Messiah. The word Messiah in that time meant the anointed one, the one sent by God and anointed by him. What's interesting is that Jesus did what he did at that time in a way that hinted that he wasn't going to be the Messiah that they were expecting. You know, I recently heard someone make a comment which I thought was very true. It says, every religious tradition has its own echo chamber where it sees what it wants to see in Scripture and does not see what it does not want to see in Scripture. And the Jews of that time were definitely in that camp because what did they expect the Messiah to be? a military leader riding in on a war stallion, and he was going to lead a rebellion against Rome and kick the Romans out and restore the kingdom, the Jerusalem, the Israeli kingdom in Jerusalem. And that was the only thing they could see. You remember, after his death, his disciples still had to be taught that what the scriptures were saying was that there would be a suffering, a suffering servant Messiah, and that's what he came to be. All that to say that um, we're going to watch now a clip from The Chosen. And uh, you, those of you that are here regularly know that I'm a real fan of that. It's a streaming TV series, very well done, very true to Scripture. And that series has not yet come to the triumphal entry, so we can't watch that. But what I'm going to show is one that we showed quite a while ago, The Woman at the Well. And the reason I chose that for today was because there was somebody... Who recognized Jesus as the Messiah was one of the first who did, and she was very excited about it. So let's watch that, and then we'll sing we'll, uh, a Palm Sunday hymn and another song. But let's watch this clip and then sing after that.
0: Me everything I've done. Oh, he must be the Christ.
3: <laughs> hey, wait. You're what, dear? You forgot your, um...
1: So that's the Messiah. Let's stand together and let's continue as we sing.
3: In your presence all our fears are washed away, washed away. Face the day. In your presence, all our fears are washed away. Cause when we see you, we find strength to face the day.
2: The, the cry of our heart? Would it be a cry of, of praise, of hosanna? Would our lives be all about bringing you praise and honor and glory? Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. On October 28th, uh, 1886, people were started to walk down the streets of New York, down towards New York Harbor as they were headed that way to celebrate the unveiling of the Statue of Liberty. So it was kind of this impromptu parade through the streets of New York. And the people in on Wall Street in their offices and their big, fancy whatever jobs, right? They, they were feeling left out that they couldn't be part of the parade. And so they spontaneously started Throwing bits of paper out of their window to join the celebration, right? and the paper they used was like the the tape that came off of their ticker machine that they used to track stocks, right? and that's how like the ticker tape parade was born. It's the impromptu celebration at the unveiling of the Statue of Liberty. Now, like the whole ticker tape parade thing has to be like one of the weirdest cultural traditions there is. Like like you know, like I feel like celebrating, so you know what I'm gonna do? I'm just gonna like throw garbage out my window and <laughs> call it a party. Like like, like 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 I don't know. Like nevertheless, like the tradition caught on and today there have been two hundred and seven ticker tape parades through the streets of New York. Right? They've been used to celebrate a wide variety of things. From like from presidential nominations, right, so there's this one. After JFK was nominated, they've been used to welcome visitors, like foreign heads of state, to New York. They've been used to celebrate the end of wars, and they've been used to celebrate sports championships. The most recent ticker tape parade was in 2019. It was to celebrate the U.S. women's soccer team winning the World Cup. But one of my favorite little factoids about these parades is that after the parades... The New York Sanitation Department collects all the debris off the streets, and before they do whatever they're going to do with it, they weigh it all. Right? <laughs> so they, they, they know how much debris was on the streets after each parade all throughout history. And it's kind of a handy way to like, be able to gauge how big of a deal each parade was. And so, by that measure, the largest ticker tape parade ever took place on. August 14th, 1945, following the announcement of the Allied victory in Japan. Following that parade, there were 3,000 street sweepers who worked through the night, and they collected 5,438 tons of material off the streets of New York. Over 10 million pounds of stuff they collected from that one parade. A few years later, there was another ticker tape parade. This one was for Douglas MacArthur. This is also one of the biggest ticker tape parades in history. After that parade, the New York Sanitation Department collected 7 million pounds of debris. And this parade was thrown for MacArthur as he was returning to the United States from being the supreme commander of the Allied powers in Japan. Like he had been in Japan for most of his career. He was a highly decorated military officer. But what made this interesting is he was coming back not because he had won some great victory, not because he was retiring. He was coming back because he had just been fired by Harry Truman. Like, and so I haven't done the research to actually confirm this, but I have to imagine that's the biggest parade for someone who's just been fired. Okay. Okay. But with that parade made clear with that there were like deep differences of opinion about what kind of man MacArthur was, like whether he was worth celebrating or whether he was not. Right? But some people thought he was so great he deserved this massive parade through the streets of New York, right? while other people thought he was insubordinate and arrogant and troublesome and he just needed to go away and be removed from the public eye. There's deep division about what kind of man MacArthur was. And in today's passage in Luke, we see another parade of sorts where the person at the center of the parade causes these deep differences of opinion as well. So in this case, the person at the center of the parade, of course, is, is Jesus. And just so we're clear, I'm not comparing Jesus to MacArthur. Like MacArthur was a deeply problematic man, and so it's not... I'm not comparing the two, but the similarity between the two parades, nonetheless, are interesting. Like In both cases, you have one group of people joyfully celebrating the person the parade is in honor of. Well, you have another group in the background plotting how to remove that person from the public eye. Also, in both cases, like both parades involve things being thrown on the ground. In MacArthur case, it was ticker tape in Luke, or Jesus' case, thankfully, was not garbage, but it was people's cloaks that they gathered up by themselves later. And so the parade in Luke, we often call it the triumphal entry. We typically celebrate it on on Palm Sunday. Although it's interesting that of the gospel writers, only Matthew actually mentions palm branches. And especially it's interesting that Luke doesn't mention palm branches because he's writing primarily to a Gentile audience, and palm branches are seen as a very nationalistic symbol of Israel. So he omits that detail. But the title of the triumphal entry refers to the fact that Jesus had finally reached Jerusalem after being on his way there, most of the book of Luke, and now he enters the city. And as he enters the city... He is greeted by his disciples outside the city as king. So we're going to walk through this passage together and see all that takes place. Starting in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28, we read this. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. Just to give you a sense of where we are, like... This is a picture up here of, of modern-day Jerusalem. And t- this picture is taken from the Mount of Olives. Right? And so the, where the Golden Dome is there, the Dome of the Rock, like that's, a, that's in the old city of Jerusalem. So that's where Jesus is headed, that general area. So he's not far, at this point, from Jerusalem. And so they're on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sends two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he has told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. And so one of the big questions that people like to argue about in this passage is, what exactly is going on here? Because there are two options. One is that Jesus his divine foreknowledge to somehow know that that donkey would be there, tied up. Or, the other option is, Jesus had, through some means, prearranged with the owner of that colt for that colt to be there waiting for him. So the question is, is this Jesus just do you think it's divine foreknowledge or is this a prearranged thing? Like, and based on the fact that like an unwritten cult in the first place would be quite rare to be tied up. And based on the owner's reaction, like I tend to think it's pretty likely that Jesus had prearranged for the cult to be there waiting for him. Like, just think of like put yourself in the position of like the donkey's owner, right? And if like, or if you had like, left your bike sitting somewhere, and someone like came up and grabbed it and was taken off with it, and you were like, what are you doing? And the person said, well, well so-and-so needs it. Like, your reaction probably won't be, oh, in that case, go for it. Right? Like, you'd be like, no, like, that's my bike. Right? But like, the owner of the, the donkey here like, seems totally fine with the disciples taking the colt. Which leads me to believe that Jesus had prearranged for this cult to be waiting for him. It also doesn't like, seem in Jesus' like, character to take something without asking. Right? So, I think like, that leads me to believe that like, this is all prearranged, and the phrase, the Lord needs it, was the kind of password that Jesus had given the owner of the cult and the disciples to know that they had the right person. And it's also important to note that. Luke makes the point of saying that this cult had never been ridden on. And animals that were unridden throughout the Old Testament were often used for, for sacred purposes. And so this is a, a special cult that's never been written that's going to be used for a sacred purpose. The other thing that's worth noting here is that the word cult in Greek can mean either a young horse or a young donkey. But in Matthew's account of this same story, it's clear that the cult is indeed a, a donkey. And that will be important in a minute. But all this leads to really really important question, which is, if Jesus prearranged this, why? Like, why would Jesus prearrange for an unridden young donkey to be waiting for him outside of Jerusalem? And the answer, I think, is two parts. Right? First... Jesus knows who he is. And second, Jesus knows the Old Testament. So Jesus knows, as we just watched in that chosen clip, that he is the Messiah. He is the long-promised king who God said would one day sit on David's throne forever. So Jesus has that self-awareness. And now he wants other people around him to understand that as well. He also knows his old... Testament. And he knows all the promises that were made about the Messiah. He knows what the Old Testament has to say about this, this coming king. And in particular, in this case, he knows Zechariah 9 9. Zechariah is talking about this king who will one day come. And Zechariah writes this Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king come to you, righteous and victorious lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then, just so it's clear that like, Zechariah is not talking about some earthly king, he goes on to say, He will proclaim peace to the nations. He will, his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. Right? This is not some earthly king, ruling some small earthly kingdom. This is the king who will rule over the whole earth, and he will rule in an era where nations are at peace with one another. And Zechariah says, this king will come riding on a donkey. That this king will be righteous and victorious, but also humble or lowly. And it's, and now, we come to this scene in the book of Luke, where Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey, and he's doing that to say, like, I'm that king. Like, I am the king that Zechariah talked about. I'm the Messiah. I am declaring, here now, I am him. That's why Jesus prearranges all this. And it's clear, based on the reaction, that the people around him get the message. They understand what he's doing. So the disciples go, and they find this cult. And continuing in verse 35, they brought it to Jesus <coughs> And they threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And he, as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And this is the way that the kings were recognized in that time period. So for example, in, in 2 Kings, Jehu was anointed king. In 2 Kings 9.13 we read, the people quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew their trumpet and shouted, Jesus is king. Right? So throwing cloaks before someone is a way of recognizing this person is a king. But just in case it wasn't clear from their actions, they also make it clear with their words. Continuing in verse 37. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're singing, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They understand Jesus is the long promised king. They say, peace in heaven. They see that Jesus is the one that will bring that long promised eternal peace that Zechariah promised, prophesied about. But not only that, they're also treating Jesus as divine. Right? They're saying, like, glory to God, in the, or glory in the highest. Right? And glory is something that should only be ascribed to God, but here they're ascribing it to Jesus himself. And right? so they're, they're praising Jesus as the long-affected king and as God. But not everyone views Jesus so favor, Favorably. And certainly not everyone thinks that Jesus is deserving of the glory that being ascribed to him. So we see that in verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, "Teacher, rebuke your disciples." So the Pharisees hear how the disciples are heaping honor and glory on Jesus, and they're, they're incredulous. Like, Don't you hear what they're saying, Jesus? Don't you know that only God deserves this kind of adoration and, and glory? Like what, why are you letting them do that? It's like, rebuke them, Jesus. And really, in many cases, that would be good advice. Right? Many charismatic leaders have fallen into sinful pride because they've attracted flatterers to themselves who build them up and never tell them No. It's important for those leaders that they have people who do more than just heap praise on them. And so, like in Locke, to the Pharisees, advice would be good advice. But for Jesus, he deserves all that praise. And there's no such thing as more praise than Jesus deserves. And so, and so Jesus said in verse 40, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Jesus is so worthy of praise and honor that if people don't praise him, the stones themselves will cry out to fill the vacuum of praise that belong to Jesus. And up until like, up until this point in Luke, right, Jesus had been trying to keep his status as the Messiah quiet. He mentioned it in the children's clip we watched, that he's not been telling people that he's the Messiah that The woman at the well was the first person he'd revealed it to. He's been trying to keep it under wrap up until now. But now that time of quietness is over. And this entry into Jerusalem is the full-on declaration and celebration that the Messiah has come. So the scene is jubilant. Everyone is celebrating. The Messiah is here. It's a joyous scene. But then the story takes a quick and sudden and unexpected turn. We go quickly from joyous celebration to tears. In verse 41, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you do not recognize the time of God's coming to you. The great tragedy of the story is that like, the king has indeed finally come. And yet, his own people ultimately don't recognize him. Anywhere they should recognize the Messiah is in Jerusalem. And yet, they reject him. And as a result, Jesus prophesied that Jerusalem would be destroyed and its inhabitants, many of them killed, And that comes true in in 70 AD when the Romans come and they first lay siege to and then utterly destroy the city of Jerusalem. And it's it's hard to wrap your head around how fast the tone of this story turns. In one second, Jesus is triumphantly entering Jerusalem. and the next second, he's weeping over the fact that the people of God and the city of God don't recognize God's Messiah. But the destruction of Jerusalem, that's like 40 years in the future. What's even more striking is how fast the attitudes of those around Jesus will go from celebratory to antagonistic. So this happens on a Sunday. This happens, like we'll celebrate on Palm Sunday. Jesus gets this warm, joyous welcome on a Sunday. Five days later, he's hanging from a cross, totally forsaken, abandoned by even many of his closest followers. Five days from joyous celebration to utter abandonment and forsakenness. And yet, even though things turn so dark so quickly, none of that changes what this event declares to be true. The fact that people reject Jesus, the fact that people mock Him and abandon Him, the fact that He will be killed, none of that changes the fact that Jesus is the righteous, victorious, and humble King. That's promised in Zechariah 9.9. What we do see, however, is that while Jesus is the promised Messiah and King, he won't be exactly the kind of Messiah that people expect. We've talked about this several times in the past few weeks. last week we looked at the parable of the ten minas. And Luke told us that the reason Jesus told that parable in the first place is that people were expecting the kingdom of God to appear all at once. They were expecting Jesus to walk into Jerusalem, kick the Romans out, and reestablish God's kingdom in Israel, here on earth, immediately. And Jesus told that parable to teach the people that there was going to be a long delay between Jesus appearing in Jerusalem and the kingdom of God being fully recognized. In the words of that parable, Jesus was going to go on a long trip and then return to establish the kingdom of God. And yet, despite that teaching, despite Jesus trying to make it as clear as possible, Many people are still going to be surprised when Jesus doesn't usher in the kingdom immediately. But thankfully for us, we live on, on this side of history. And we're, we're able to see how the rest of Jesus' time on earth plays out. And so we can, we can look back on these events and we can see how they prepare us for Jesus' return when he will be seen as fully king. But even... That we wait for the day when Jesus will return, come back, and his kingdom will be fully realized. But even when we wait for that return, even when we wait for the kingdom of God to be fully realized, we also can have confidence that Jesus is even now still reigning as king. In Ephesians 1, Paul writes this. That power is the same as the mighty strength that he, that is God, exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realm. God seated Jesus far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. God placed, past tense, placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. God already placed all things under Jesus' feet. And under his feet is a picture of authority. So Jesus reigns as king even now. Similarly, in 1 Timothy, Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He who is, present tense, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings. Even now, Jesus is the blessed and only sovereign. He is the King of kings. Even right now, Jesus is the righteous, victorious, and humble king that is promised in Zechariah 9.9. We still have a few minutes left this morning, but what I want to do briefly is just go through those three adjectives that Zechariah gives us for the king that Jesus is. Those adjectives, righteous and victorious and humble, right? those aren't there by accident. They all describe a vital aspect of Jesus' kingship. So want to look briefly at each one, starting with his righteousness. At the very end of Luke, a few, in a few chapters after this, we'll come to the crucifixion of Jesus. And immediately after Jesus died on the cross, one of the Roman centurions who's there will declare, surely this was a righteous man. And indeed, Jesus was righteous. He was utterly sinless. Like in him, there was no sin. He was righteous. He's the only one who could ever claim that to be true of themselves. Right? We all sin. Like none of us can claim to be perfectly righteous the way Jesus was righteous. And it matters that Jesus was righteous. Right? Like Jesus wasn't just a really good person that we should all try to be like. Right? He didn't just kind of be an example for us. Right? He wasn't just really good. He was perfect. And he lived the life we all should have lived, but failed to live. And probably in all the sermons I've preached since I've been here, I've probably quoted 2 Corinthians 5.21 more than any other verse. So Maybe you're sick of hearing it, but I don't care. <laughs> like, it's, a, it's a verse that needs to be dwelt upon and embraced and savored over and over again. It says this, God made Him, that's Jesus, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus had no sin. Because He had no sin, because He was righteous, He could take our sin. He could become sin for us. He could and because of that, we could inherit His righteousness. Like, he takes our sin, we get His righteousness. That's the best trade ever. And because we receive that righteousness, we can be confident in our relationship with God. The author of Hebrew puts it this way. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet He did not sin. How should that affect us? The author of Hebrews says, In light of that, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Because Jesus was righteous, because He was like us in every way, yet did not sin. We can approach God's throne of grace with confidence. We can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And none of that is true if Jesus is not the righteous king. None of that is true if Jesus is just a man who lived a good life. It only worked if Jesus lived a fully sinless life. And because he lived that sin, life, like that he is also victorious. Because Jesus was righteous, because he did not sin, he also did not deserve death. The Bible tells us that death is what happens because of our sin. And so because Jesus was put to death, yet didn't have any sin, like death could not hold him. Paul writes, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, through His death and resurrection, has shown us that He has defeated all His enemies. Death is defeated. It no longer needs to be feared. Death is defeated. Sin is defeated. Satan is defeated. And Jesus is victorious. Because of that, as we walk through this life, like death no longer needs to be the final thing we dread, that have been defeated. We look forward to a day when we can be raised from the dead. Jesus made it possible. Jesus is victorious. And yet despite his victoriousness, it doesn't go to his head, he's also humble. By becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So again, it's so easy to take this for granted. Just like Jesus gave up the glories of heaven. He made himself nothing for us. He humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. He went to a cross. For us because he was humble. He died in our place because he was humble. And as a result, Philippians continues, therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because of his humility, Jesus went to the cross. Because of that, God gives him the name that is above every name. And it's because of his humility that every knee will one day bow at the name of Jesus Jesus says humility is an essential part of his being king. And Jesus is that. He is king. And that fact that he is king can be either great news or it can be terrible news. If you acknowledge that Jesus is indeed that king, then that, it's wonderful news. As we said if, if you acknowledge him as king, that he gives you his righteousness... He equips you to approach the throne of grace with confidence that you can receive mercy and grace. He gives you victory over Satan and sin and death. Like, Jesus' kingdomship is wonderful if you acknowledge that he is king, if you submit to him as your king. Right? But if you don't, then Jesus' kingship is, is not good news for you. In Revelation 19, we read, he, this is Jesus. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth, this sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations, he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. It's really easy and nice to dwell on the positive aspect of Jesus as king. But this is also part of Jesus as king. That for those who don't submit to him, who don't bow to him as king, Judgment is coming. We read in Philippians a few minutes ago that one day every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. Like every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The question then is will your knee bow willingly? Will you bow it now when it's your choice? Will your tongue confess freely now? We'll confess later when it's too late. And so if you're, you're here right, and you've never submitted to Jesus as king, you never trusted in Jesus, you never asked him to forgive your sins, to give you his righteousness, and ask him to take your sins from you. You're like this judgment is what awaits. God urge you, if you've never trusted you, if you've never called him king, submitted him as king, trust him. It's a joyous thing to know that because he is your king, you can approach the throne with confidence to know that death is not the end, that there is a future in the new heavens and the new earth where all sin and pain and suffering is no more. submit to Jesus the King if you haven't already. For those of us who who are here, who have submitted to Jesus the King, who acknowledge that Jesus is the King, right? I don't have a lot of you should do these three things coming out of this message. Right? But man, you should rejoice. Jesus is King. He is... Victorious, He is righteous, and yet He is humble. He is King. And like whatever going on in your life, whatever pain or suffering or trials you may be going through, Jesus is King. He will one day return. He will come, and He will set all things right there will be no more pain there will be no more suffering there will be no more death because Jesus will return so the, like the application is just like rejoice and praise your king like, like look at those disciples that Jesus walks into Jerusalem exulting and praising him and actually we got reaction to Jesus the rejoice and praise your King. Let's pray. Father God, we are indeed so thankful that Jesus, is the King. That even though we can look around and see all kinds of signs that this world is not now as it should be, if confident that Jesus lived in this world as well. He saw the sin and the brokenness around Him. He humbled Himself. To come to us so that He could experience all that brokenness. And yet He didn't sin, yet He went to the cross for us. As a sign, as a promise that this world is not all that there is. That you have not forgotten us, you have not forsaken us, you have not left us to the fate we deserve for our sin. That you are in the process of making all things new. You look forward to the day when Jesus returns. His kingdom is fully realized when all things are set right. And rejoice in the new heavens and the new earth, free from pain and sin and suffering and death. But until that day comes, I must not lose confidence that Jesus is King right now. That He reigns over this earth even now. That He is enacting His good purposes even in the midst of pain and suffering. Help us to live with confidence that Jesus is King. Help us to rejoice in the fact that Jesus is King. Remind us daily that it doesn't depend on us but on what Jesus did on the cross for us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you You've made him king, but to rejoice in that fact day after day, but we'll never lose sight of the fact that Jesus reigns. Earth in Jesus name. Amen. Would you go from here this morning, would you go? rejoicing, celebrating, confident in the fact that Jesus is indeed King. You are dismissed.
3: at his own and the land.